Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. Where, along with my partners, Ann and Crystal, we do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. 2020 has brought the world to its knees. This certainly has been a year where our everyday lives have been twisted and turned, and some may say, if you'll pardon the intended pun, has left us spinning. My special guest this week literally got the world spinning after her divorce judge told her to get a job. Ruth Zuckerman picked herself up, dusted herself off, and if you are spinning right now on a bike at your home, no matter what bike you're using, you can probably thank Ruth, as she really pioneered this industry that today, more than ever, is booming, and now as most gyms remain closed or kind of a bit scary to even think about going to, has really helped create a community of people that she could help and inspire and truly change their daily lives forever. I, of course, am talking about Ruth Zuckerman, who is best known for co-founding SoulCycle, and then why not Flywheel? (laughs) and doing this at age 48 and 52. And as Ruth says, it was the evolution of the life she had lived so far and the right circumstances at the right time. She then went on to write a New York Times bestselling memoir, Riding High, How I Kissed SoulCycle Goodbye, co-founded Flywheel, and built the life I always wanted. A book we're going to talk a little bit about later, but trust me, you're going to want to add this to your summer reading list if you have not read it already. And the story of Ruth is far from done. And since we are all talking Hamilton speak right now, she is not going to give away her shot. So welcome, Ruth, to Financially Speaking. Thank you so much. And thank you for that generous intro. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I had to throw the Hamilton thing in. I was obsessed anyway, seeing it a few times. But uh, now that I can just watch it whenever, it's really amazing. (laughs) Well, first, I want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Esther Peron, who tells me that she began working out at your dance studio on West 72nd Street while Esther was busy freelancing at MTV as a photographer, which I think was somewhere in the, in the late 80s, probably. When I asked Esther to describe you in one word, she actually gave me two, <laughs> resilient and meditative. Both great words. So, so let's start with the obvious. What what has 2020 been like for you? And, and and first of all, I hope most of all that you and your family are are healthy and and doing well. Appreciate that, and and everyone is healthy, and I'm very thankful for that. Obviously, I mean, talk about having to pivot. It it really threw me for a loop because. After I left Flywheel, which was at the end of 2018, I have been spending my time, you know, really trying to be thoughtful about what was next for me. And I had some ideas that I was following through on, and then the pandemic hit, and it changed everything because I'm kind of a brick-and-mortar girl, if you will. And, And so I was planning on continuing in that direction with a more specific focus. And yes, the pandemic happened. And obviously, that threw brick and mortar out the window and definitely caused me to kind of start again from square one. And as a result, I am actually in the process now of teaching classes online and 
quite frankly, surprisingly enjoying it. I was a naysayer at first because I thought, how could I possibly touch my community in the way that I do when it's a live class and everyone's right in front of me. But with Zoom, I will say, you you know, there is that interaction and, and to a certain extent, you can still do it. And so that's been actually a really nice surprise. Yeah, it really, really has been. I had just started doing some simple types of, uh, wanted to start doing more core exercises and lifting and stuff like that. And I've been doing that via Zoom with somebody locally who I had just been referred to literally a week before all this happened. And, you know, we've been able to manage to do that a couple of times a week. And and so your classes that you're teaching right now are via Zoom. If somebody wants to find them, is this like a friends and family thing? Or is this something where they can actually go to a link and, and be do these classes? There is a link that right now is... Uh you can find on my Instagram account. However, I am in a transition and um, will be switching links. So I'm going to finish out this week at the link that's currently posted. And then I'm going to, I have a special announcement that I haven't made yet that will inform everybody about where I will be found next. That's great. Are you feeling stranded out there? I mean, how are you making everyday count, you know, in a year where Half the time, at least in my circles, I don't even know what day of the week is. Oh my I mean, God, really. I know. It's so hard. And I'll tell you, the first couple months, the, the time between end of March when I moved out to where I am now to starting to teach, which was about a month ago, it was really challenging. And then I basically got a bike in my house, which I hadn't had. And Sure enough, I shouldn't have been surprised, but once I got on the bike, it just made all the difference for me because obviously spinning is something that has never gotten old for me. And it's still incredible to me that 20 years later, I get on the bike, I put on my playlist and I ride for 45 minutes and I am a transformed person at the end of the ride. I always say the drug has been administered and then the rest of my day takes on a whole new meaning and feels completely different and all in a positive direction. Well, I, I get it. And I, and, and <laughs> yeah. someone who started as more of an outdoor cyclist, which I still enjoy because my wife really got into it probably about 20 years ago when we were oh, turning 60 this year. So, you know, we're just getting into our early forties. The kids were younger and, and she was doing these rides and she wanted to do these bike trips. And she says, there's this company called Backroads and we want to, I want to go to Napa. And I'm like, I haven't been on my bike since I had a Schwinn when I was 14. So I quickly trained as, as quickly as possible and found the right inhaler that I needed because I have exercise induced asthma and realized, oh boy, this is not as easy as it looks. And then we started doing some of these bike trips and, and really over, you know, loved biking outdoors. And, and I still do in the summer, but I refuse to go when it's really hot and humid because it just, I'm just makes me sick. It's just, it's yeah. just not fun anymore. Yes. Whereas I can have the two fans on me on my bike at home. And quite frankly, I get a much better workout in every, in every sense of sense of the imagination. So I like to start every episode. I always credit this guy. His name is Flip Flippins. Um, it's his, really his name. I and mean, he wrote a book called Your First Story, which is kind of the one that you're born with. If we can go back a little bit and talk a little bit about that and how you know, that has had a tremendous effect on, on your life in many ways in, in your childhood, because you, you certainly in the book speak very frankly about 
a difficult relationship with your mom and sadly losing your dad way too young. But where'd you grow up? I grew up in Roslyn, Long Island. Mm -hmm. My father was a physician and my mother was a psychotherapist. And it's funny, as far as I was concerned, I had the perfect childhood. And it wasn't until I started really delving into some of the issues that remained challenging for me as I grew up and became an adult. It was only until then that I really started to learn about my childhood and what went on. And it was the only way I could ultimately understand myself and make improvements and, and kind of alleviate some of the challenges that had been um, recurrent in my life. And, and yeah, I, I had a very challenging relationship with my mother. She was a narcissist. And as a result, there was really no room for me. And, and, you know, she loved me very much and did the best she could, but there were ramifications for having a narcissistic parent, as we all know. And I kind of didn't have a voice and everything she said was more informed than what I said. And I ended up growing up with very low self-esteem, very little confidence in myself. And boy, does that take a toll as you get older. And Absolutely. and boy, does it dictate your choices and a lot of them not so good choices. Mm -hmm. But you, you got out, you studied dance at Mount Holyoke and started to begin to find a place in the world. And for you at that point, I guess you felt dancing was kind of your golden ticket. Yes. You know, I started taking dance classes when I was eight years old, ballet specifically. Eventually, as I got a little older, I tried different kinds of dance, um, jazz and modern, and took to those genres more naturally than I did to ballet and really derived so much enjoyment from dancing. And it, again, looking back, it kind of made sense to me because it was hard to find myself and my persona in my home and in my family. And dance kind of became an escape for me and a, a safe place for me. And I was really able to kind of find a very specific persona when I was dancing. And so it's no wonder that it became a very important part of my life. And yes, I had decided early on that I wanted to pursue it as a career. And um, one of the reasons why I chose Mount Holyoke was because it had a great dance department and it was a strong school academically and I felt I could kind of get it all. And so after graduating college, my goal was to have a career in dance in New York City, probably the toughest place to, to break in. And boy, was it tough. And a year and a half, two years in of audition after audition and rejection, I decided it's not working. And then I was, it was kind of a big fish out of water moment where it was kind of like, what am I going to do now? I certainly understand that because I wanted to be an actor and that was my first love and studied at Northwestern and studied at HB Studios and acted in college. Uh, ironically, I went to college with Alec Baldwin. He never acted, you know, and I was in all the shows and we were friends and he was in very uh, politically involved and, you know, we were involved in some other ways and, and then, you know, Things didn't quite work out for me in that area. And then all of a sudden he winds up <laughs> doing this. Um, but I like the guy, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to beat up on him because he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a good guy. And we had, we had a lot of great times, but interesting talking about the dancing. Cause recently I interviewed a, a friend of mine, Maureen Van Zandt. She began her career as a dancer and she was very lucky. She got into hair. I mean, right when it came out 
But she really talked about the painful times auditioning in the late 60s. And that really was that, that was it. I mean, she never, that led her in a lot of other fun directions in the music world where she, you know, was dating somebody in Jimi Hendrix band and, you know, and was at Woodstock. And, and then of course, she went on to co-star with her husband, Stephen Van Zant in The Sopranos and has her own theater company. And I've known her through the nonprofit world of music education. But the point in bringing that all up is really, you know, to, what you're saying is that um, not so easy, as Abba says, to be a dancing queen. I mean, it obviously, you know, taught you both figuratively and mentally how to stand on your own two feet. I mean, I just think of a chorus line as, as sort of the classic idea of what it was like, I imagine, auditioning for dance roles. Yes, Yes. Yeah. So yeah, so it took a toll on me, uh, definitely on my self-esteem once again. And because it was so low at that time, I, as I said, had fish out of water, had no idea what I was going to do next, nor did I have the confidence to think I could figure it out. And so as I say in my book, and again, I don't mean to make it sound so simple, but I got married. That's what I did. And I married someone who, you know, I absolutely fell in love with and wanted to marry. But a lot of the reasons that went into it were around the fact that he was very driven and kind of was a take control person. And, and that fit perfectly into what I thought my needs were, which was to be taken care of and to be, you know, kind of domineered because I, again, based on my upbringing, never thought I could make the right decisions myself. And that has to be obviously uh, quite a cross to bear and, and something to, to, to work with. And were you working at the dance studio while you were married or did, did you start doing that you know, after your marriage? I started doing that actually before the marriage. And um, it was, you know, very part time, but it was an interesting transition, obviously, from giving up dance because it was kind of a dance aerobic studio. So I was kind of able to feel like I was dancing, even though it was more geared toward aerobic exercise. And, you know, sure enough, obviously, that was my first foray into fitness. And everything happens for a reason. And, and as I also talk about in my book, it was just interesting how much I was able to glean from that experience and use in my future days as an entrepreneur. And also music. One of the things that I really loved reading about in your book as a obviously a big music fan, but also a big vinyl person that, you know, you were, you were going out to record stores and which store were you hanging out in? I know you were, you were at a vinyl record store in the city finding your music. I was. And honestly, that was the highlight of my day was hanging out at a store called Vinyl Mania on Amsterdam Avenue and 73rd. And they had a guy sitting there spinning records and you could listen to whatever you wanted to listen to. And it was the highlight of my day because, yes, I was exposed to music at a very early age through dance classes and also through my father's love of music. So there was always music playing in my house. I played the flute, he played the piano. So it became a, a very important part of my life and really such a driving force in how I ended up spinning because music is such an integral part of the success of a spin class. 
Absolutely. And you had your high fidelity John Cusack moment hanging out in the record stores. And as someone who's done a lot of that throughout their life, including to this day, um, when I get into a city, I, I find... Um, you know, find a vinyl place. I have a friend who's really into that stuff and, and has a, a show on Sirius. And we're always, it's just so much fun to keep looking at that. But music, obviously, it spoke to you then. And obviously, while you were at this dance studio, you, you had a kind of a difficult boss um, who kind of made things even more challenging for you. But I think the lesson, if I, if I have this correct, that you really took away from that experience is how important that employees are the, the most important asset. That's something I think you found in, in that studio. Yes, they're the most important asset. And therefore, it's so important that you are mindful as to how you treat your employees. Exactly, exactly. And especially if you're going to have people and, you know, we'll name drop for a minute that were popping in, you know, to the studios like James Taylor, or Carly Simon or Ben Stiller or Kevin Bacon. And my favorite story is maybe I'll let you tell it about Jennifer Gray, because I think that's really interesting. <laughs> right. It was interesting, interesting timing that she was coming and taking class. This was before Dirty Dancing. And, you know, she was an aspiring actor at the time. But nothing was big was happening for her. So she decided she would train to be an instructor there. And I trained her personally. And then during that process was when she got the role in Dirty Dancing. And as I say in the book, she quickly gave up her career as an aerobics instructor and was certainly on her way. Well, Patrick Swayze didn't teach her anything then. It was all you. You taught her. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Mitch. I'll take it. Well, I, I, and you should. That's uh, the, that's just such an iconic movie, and and a, really a wonderful, wonderful story when your when your life just sort of fits into history in in many different ways. And I've had some weird moments like that myself, so I, I, I get that. But one, one common thread that I've really heard on this show since I started doing it from from successful entrepreneurs and, and creative types like you, and you clearly state this in your book, is that failure is underrated. And I wanted to talk about that because I, I know you can we, you know, we talk about a little bit of examples, but it's really more about trusting your, your own intuition. I think you, you can speak to that pretty well. Absolutely. I mean, failure, I learned through experience is just such a learning opportunity because it's the only way you figure out what not to repeat moving forward. And I certainly had a lot of failure moments and during many of them, in retrospect, my gut knew what was right, but I didn't trust it. And sure enough, that led to failure. And when I have trusted my gut, it's paid off. And so that in itself was a huge learning lesson. But I love to share that with people because it's so easy to let failure stop you and dissuade you from continuing. And for me, it just became the impetus to try harder. And obviously, I think the most glaring example was opening up Flywheel after SoulCycle didn't work out and literally opening up a business that became the competitor to the business I started. And you know, many people often ask, you know, how did you have the strength and the drive to pick yourself up after that horrendous experience, which it was after SoulCycle and do it again? And my answer was, is, is always, I couldn't imagine not. 
I, I just, this is what I did. This is what I do. And so it just became logical to do it again. I couldn't imagine not. And it's so interesting. And I, you know, the, unfortunately, we haven't come up with a better word for failure, but it, because I, I, I just hate the word, but the reality is, uh, you know, we live in a, in a, in a society of win, win, lose, pass, fail, you know, so to speak. But the reality is, is that most of the successful people that I know, you know, yes, they put in the 10,000 hours, but the drive is there. But, you know, until, until you get the, you know, the, the classic uh, sand kicked in your face a few times, you're always going to find that drive somewhere. And I guess, where did you, where did that strength and ability to, to live your best life on your terms come from? Oh my God. It came from every time. It's a great segue because it came from every time Every failure moment is a strength building moment. And I talk a lot when I do my keynote speeches, I talk a lot about failure and resilience going hand in hand. So you experience a failure and then resilience is built. And I I kind of talk about resilience as being a muscle. And every time you fail and you learn the muscle gets stronger and your resilience gets stronger. Your, your ability to be resilient gets stronger. And then that just, and then that builds over time. It builds with every successive failure and, and your strength is there. And ironically, the strength happens because of the mistakes, because of the moments of failure. And I honestly think that's what allowed me to persevere because of this kind of resilience that kind of just happens. Yeah, it, it, it does. And, and, and you never know when it's going to happen. And so, you know, and, and as, as like you, I have kids that are mid to late twenties. I think your, your twins might be close to 30, somewhere in that range. They're going to be 30 this summer. They've been both fortunate and got good jobs out of college and, and, you know, one's changed once already, which, which is normal and, and was a positive change. But both my wife and I have, because my wife's second career was journalism, and she's been at Time Magazine now for, I don't know, 25, off and on 25, 30 years. But, you know, she was, got her degree in social work, and that's what she was going to do. And absolutely, was just was not the right fit for her, and began baking muffins at six in the morning at a, at a place in Philadelphia so she could intern, you know, at other places. And I did a lot of the same things in, in the early days of my of my radio uh career working for Larry King, working overnight and putting the time in, but then maybe making some decisions that I look back on that probably were failures that might have led me in other directions, but it built on the drive. And I just think that's so great. And for anybody that, uh, and we'll talk later about how you're a keynote speaker and you're out there and getting to hear this message and you deliver it obviously very well in the book. For example, the Stanford speech that you gave, uh, the talk is is really, really wonderful and, and, and to me is as good as any TED talk that I've watched. And I think people can come, come away with so much with that. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about spinning itself because you talked in the book and like you found it like dancing on a bicycle a little bit. And elaborate a little bit more on that because I'm, I'm, I'm very fascinated from that aspect because I, I am... One of the things that probably kept me from from acting and getting different parts is that I never got the dance part. I could sing, I could act, I could play an instrument, but I just 
couldn't dance, just was not for me. And yet you talk about that combination on the bike, and I've never really thought of it that way. But where do you see the two parallels uh, connecting? It's obviously one of the biggest reasons why I was so immediately attracted to spin. And it's because it's it's twofold. A, as we talked about before, it's because of the music and how integral the music, the playlist is to the experience on the bike. And it's, you know, no less integral than it is to the dance. And so I immediately was attracted to that. And then you are moving to the music. So in a sense, there's choreography involved because even though you're on a bike and it's a stationary bike that goes nowhere, you're sitting, you're standing, you're responding to the beat of the music, you're responding to the measures of the music. So you might come up out of the saddle when there's a shift in the music. And so there's choreography there. And then once the instructor is utilizing choreography, you have a group of people that are moving together, that are moving as a chorus, if you will, as a pack. And so it becomes this group experience, right? Because you're moving to the music just like you are in dance and you're moving as a core, as an ensemble. And those are the two biggest ways in which it felt like dancing to me. And, you know, there are some movements, some other movements you can do on the bike that kind of make it feel a little more like dancing. But for me, I was very careful about what I did on the bike because safety was always first and foremost, the most important thing. If I'm giving a class to people, I want them to come back. I don't want them to get injured. And so there is a line that, you know, I've seen so many spin classes over the years that where people really get carried away and are doing all kinds of crazy movements on the bike, which in my opinion can be dangerous. So I just wanted to throw that in that I've, you know, with that being said, I've always been very careful about not doing too much. I was going to ask you this later, but it, it fits right now. Because one of the things that I've, I, I love about it, and, and the other thing that I struggle with, and I know this was a big part of, of, of Flywheel specifically, is, is all of the metrics. And maybe it's just me because I was never a good test taker, and I'm a very type A personality. I have to shut that part off of the screen. I, I cannot watch and see what my ranking is. It's just too, it's painful. It, I just, I, don't know, I just find that very, very painful. And I, and, I, and I look at some of the numbers that some other people are doing. And again, it's not fair. I'm 59, you know, and in okay shape, but, you know, I don't know who else is on a ride at any other time and, and, and what their, their fitness level is. But it's just always sort of, I guess when you, what's your general thinking when it comes to the, the resistance, the cadence and all of these different things that are on there? Is it meant for everybody or maybe, maybe for, for some people, that's why you get the opportunity to, to shut that off? Yeah, I mean, for sure. Everything you just said in terms of your reaction to it, you know, there is definitely a significant group of people out there who feel exactly the same way you do. And it's just interesting how it all evolved because 
I started Soul Cycle and then I started Flywheel and they're two, you know, they ended up being two such different experiences on a bike, which was a good thing because it was a way to immediately differentiate ourselves from Soul Cycle when we first started. My partner at the time was the one who introduced me to the, this idea of metrics and I was actually very against it in the beginning and I talk about that in the book as well and then I gave it a shot and I was immediately able to see the benefits of it and how, you know, you can, to a certain degree, have a more efficient ride when you can see exactly where you're supposed to be. And it's interesting because you mentioned being a type A personality and therefore it not working for you. It's funny because it definitely attracts type A personalities as well because there's the, the group of type A's who want the metrics and then they want to improve upon their score every single time they ride. And then there are the type A's who are so type A that they can't even handle the pressure of looking at the numbers. So therefore they don't want the numbers. So it's just interesting. Yeah. And, and I, I think uh, the more the more that I've done it, the more I've found a compromise. And I mean, obviously, I, I pay attention to the resistance and cadence during the ride. I don't mind that. It's it's more about the rankings and it's, it's more about feeling like I'm being graded. And, and you know, I, I think I still have dreams about my SAT scores. And I'm convinced I had the lowest math SAT scores in, <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the history of New Jersey. And I'm proud of that. And even though I'm, I'm a financial advisor, um, I figured another way around it. Thank God for computers and calculators. But those are the, those are the kinds of things that you know are, that can be very positive. My son, for example, is all about the numbers, and and he's a lot less Type A than I am. But but he's so focused on it. And actually, um, my numbers look a lot better because we share the same account. <laughs> so you get into it into the book. We'll just touch into it. So you started SoulCycle you know, with a few other partners, things started out really rosy and, and then, you know, things just kind of broke down a little bit once the success hit. Exactly. And live and learn, right? Again, quite a failure experience in terms of it being, it was a failed partnership. And it's a question I'm often asked. In fact, I think I was asked this at the Stanford event, you know, people say, well, how do you know how to pick the right partner? And when starting a business. And that's a really tricky question because there is no formula. There is no guarantee. And for me, you know, one of, it it was three of us and, and one of the partners was a very close friend and I actually brought her into the partnership. And I think that from the get go, I would advise people probably not to start a business business with a really close friend. It doesn't always bode well. And it certainly didn't in this situation. You know, I also wasn't protected by a written legal agreement, unfortunately, and and that burned me as well. But you know, as I talk about in the book, so much of that experience tied into who I was at the time. And who I was at the time, again, was a product of my childhood and my upbringing. And and therefore, I felt that I needed to be with the personality types that I partnered with. And that did not serve me well, because those are personality types, quite frankly, like my mother, who I thought I needed because I didn't have the confidence to think I could make my own decisions. And that obviously was a formula for failure for me. But again, live and learn. Really learn about yourself and try and really understand yourself before you pick your partners because it's very telling in terms of who you pick. 
Oh, I, I agree. And in the, I, I, I've had two partners during my career as a, an advisor. The first was my dad, and we were extremely different, but I'm so fortunate that we had those seven or eight years since he's been gone 10 years. I, I, I appreciate that even more. And then finding another partner for me was, was really a struggle um, because it had to be somebody. I wanted it to be someone ex- very different for me. One and one's got to make three. And the, the woman that I've partnered with at UBS is, I think in every relationship, there's an accelerator and a break. And I'm, I'm, I'm just always going to be the accelerator. That's just how I'm built. And thank God my partner, Anne, is the break and, and, and looks at things and the brains. She, she's the Ivy Leaguer. So I give her, I give her that too. But it, it's, it's really important, I think. And, and I've seen so many partnerships break up in my industry as, as well as others, because people have worked with friends. I, I think you're, you're, that's so true. So, so you get pushed to the brink and then you create this new platform, as you said, more with technology at Flywheel. So what were some of the key things that started Flywheel for you? So much of it was, again, learning from my past experience. And certainly, you know, there were so many things about SoulCycle that were great and obviously led it to the huge success that it was and is. But there were a lot of things that didn't work at SoulCycle. And so I had that advantage of knowing what they were and improving on them from the get-go with flywheels. So, you know, things like because we had metrics, we set up small laptops in the reception check-in area so that you didn't have to wait on a long line to check in for class. You could do it yourself very quickly on a laptop. Creating wide spaces so you didn't have sweaty bodies coming out of a class rubbing up against clean bodies going into the class. I mean, no one liked that. And there were so many, you know, smaller examples like those and bigger examples in terms of really focusing on customer service and responding to every single email that came in from a customer, every single complaint, as annoying as many of them were, it didn't matter. Let the customer know how honored you are to have them and how, how much you appreciate it. And as you and I talked about before, the same treatment for your employees, you know, treat them like gold and then they'll want your business to succeed as much as you do. No, I heard it's so, I'm so glad you put it that way because I, I try to remember where I heard this recently where someone started off a speech saying, I'm going to blow your mind. And they said, the customer, for all of our lives, the customer is always right. And he said, that's BS. That's not true. Because the only way the customer can always be right is if the employee is treated with respect. And they went on to talk about the, you know, kind of the marriage of the two and how important that was. And, and I think that's so, so true. Actually, the CEO of Levi's, actually, who I heard that from uh, a good friend of mine, Mark Friedman, on his podcast, had the CEO of Levi's, and, and he talked about that. And I thought that was just really fascinating. So for many entrepreneurs by now, and, and obviously you, you left, you stayed at Flywheel, things were going fine and, and, what was the split there? The split there was kind of the seed to that split was when Flywheel was acquired in 2014, right? And we, you know, so we sold and I stayed on. My two partners left very quickly. And look, while being able to sell the business was an 
was a wonderful thing and, and so validating in terms of all the work we put into it. A lot of negatives go with it as well when you're a co-founder and you stay with the business because obviously there's going to be a huge amount of change. And there was, and it was all about scaling the business, which of course I expected, but it was a very different type of team at the top. And, um, you know, they ran the business very differently and made a lot of, of their own mistakes. And it was frustrating because there was a certain amount of, uh, we know better. And I know that that happens a lot too, when businesses are taken over and, you know, a lot of the quote unquote old school people kind of are shown to the door and you have a whole new team who didn't necessarily experience what we all did in the beginning. And so there were a lot of learning lessons for them. And it was kind of hard to watch that and live through it when I kind of knew more. And the team that took over, they had no experience in fitness businesses. And, that, and so that unfortunately uh, was a disadvantage for them. And that that probably is the story eighty to ninety percent of the time. I mean that 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 I've heard that all the time, including my brother had a brownie business that was very successful in the in the eighties. It was sold to a major corporation, and you know he he knew within a few months that this was not for him. And I'm, I'm anxious. My friend Gary Vaynerchuk just sold uh, one of his wine companies, Empathy Wine, to uh, Constellation Brands. You know, this conglomerate. And I'm anxious to see how long Gary stays with that because uh, he's very specific in the way that uh, he runs all of his businesses and, and all of his social media. Yes. And I, I just have to interject and tell you that I've heard Gary speak and I, I, his, his speaking really left an impression on me. He is quite a character. He is. Gary's been a friend and, and, and full disclosure, a client. And I'm allowed to say that I have, I have, I have a signed document. So who, whoever's listening in compliance, there's a signed document <laughs> that allows me to say this. So, you know, but I've worked with Gary and with Vayner and, 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 you know, been watched him really watched the evolution over the last 20 years. And it's pretty, pretty fascinating. So you just keep getting stronger, smarter. You 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 keep focusing more on on the mental component of what you learned, and I think that's that's such a great takeaway. I want to talk a little bit about the ride because I think it's really interesting, and I I think there are a lot of listeners that are riding at home right now. And and what do you think as and and as an instructor, and obviously you are one. What do you think makes the perfect instructor? There's just so many different factors and in different people that I've I've found that, you know, very focused on the music or very focused sometimes just on themselves. <laughs> oh, thank you for bringing that up first. <laughs> and without and, you know, Peloton is a, is a, is a I, I, I have a full disclosure of Peloton, but there are many of the instructors that. Uh, I know within five minutes are not right for me because um, I know who they're focused on. <laughs> it's not me. Exactly. Yeah. And you know what? There's no, obviously, obviously there's not one pat answer to your question. And there are plenty of successful instructors out there with very different styles and, you know, and, and there's someone for everyone. For me personally, it was always extremely important from the get go that the instructor makes the rider his or her priority. And that's something I did from the start. And I guess I learned, I know that I learned very early on that it, so much of the success of the class was about the instructor's ability to connect with the rider and actually make the ride about them and not about 
themselves. And when I started actually both SoulCycle and Flywheel, I made that the number one ask of all the instructors who would work with me in either place. And again, after I left Seoul, I I mean, that changed quite a bit. But at Fly, I made sure, you know, since I obviously stayed there much longer. And so I made sure that was consistent among all the instructors, that priority was connecting with your riders, noticing them, giving them a shout out, listening to what they had to say at the end of the class or before the class. And It was that connection that really brought everybody back, sometimes six days a week, three days a week, whatever. That's what people want at the end of the day. They want to be noticed and they want to be paid attention to and they want to be connected with. That's what human beings want. And certainly uh, with the pandemic, it's been challenging for all of us human beings because we just instinctually want to connect. Oh, it's the hardest part of it all. It really is. And I mean, we, we be, you know, we've begun some social distancing barbecues at our house with one other family and, you know, we're doing everything right. Um, and we follow all the rules, but it's, it's just not the same. And it's, uh, that I miss, I mean, as somebody like, like Esther, who's spent a good part of the last 30 years in, in pits at Springsteen concerts, you know, very close to the stage, it, it became a community which is not going to exist again, unfortunately. That I don't see coming back so quickly. I'm mean, just even hugging my mom. I mean, that 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 was, you know, which I did on her birthday um, because I just said the hell with it. And I had been tested too. So it was, you know, I felt safe. But, you know, it's it's just those little things that are so, so critical. So you also, this, this is probably, you know, uh, interesting to talk about for a little bit because you've coached a lot of very famous people because they just come out to the Hamptons or wherever and and they may walk in one day and it could be, you know, I've read in your book about Sting and Chelsea Clinton and Caroline Kennedy. And, you know, as somebody who worked uh, for Larry King for a number of years and been around a lot of celebrities, I, I, I got over my intimidation very quickly, with the exception of Bruce. Every time I meet him, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I don't, I'm out of my mind. Understandable. But uh, other than that, it's got to be strange. And I have to ask you about Maureen Dowd, um, like <laughs> because I, she's just one of one of my favorite writers. I didn't agree with her on, on some things over the years, but in general, I've agreed with her a lot lately. And what was it like working, you know, with the, some of these celebrities? Like, or did they just really wanted hands off and just just show me what to do and treat me like everyone else? And yes, um, for sure, a lot of them do want to be treated like everyone else or you know definitely some of them want hands off and they they kind of want to be in their own space and don't want to be you know be a spectacle of attention Maureen Dowd was a long time ago that was in the uh, beginnings of soul cycle and she was one of those who definitely wanted her own space as did Caroline Kennedy and again completely understandable and I think for me the more I was around celebrities, uh, the more I could kind of intuit what they might want or not want. And, you know, as you just said, the more you're around them, the more you get a little less starstruck and realize that they're human beings. People, yeah, they're just beings. regular. I mean, you, you, you're out in, in Sag Harbor and, and I've spent a lot of time out there and have run into Paul McCartney and run into Billy Joel. And even though I, no Alec Baldwin, you know, he's all over the place. So you, you know, you, you just sort of 
get used to that kind of lifestyle, you know. But I do have to ask you that if Sting was in your class, did you immediately like change the music and say, we're starting with Roxanne? <laughs> And <laughs> um, interesting anecdote uh, in response to that, which is that Sting made it very clear that he did not want any of his music played in class. And I totally respected that. And, you know, quite frankly, the biggest, most intimidating moments were, you know, you typically people would sign up for class the day before because the classes would get full. And every once in a while, Sting would show up after not signing up the night before. And sure enough, I would have a Sting or a police song on my playlist and I would freak out before class like, oh my God, he's not going to like this. But I would surely tell him before the class and he was a total good sport about it and and told me that the real reason was because he would start singing in the class and he really didn't want to do that. So <laughs> I know, but he was awesome and absolutely an extremely thrilling person to have in class because of my love of his music. And it was definitely fun if I did know he was going to be in class to kind of curate my playlist in a way where I would actually introduce some music to him that he hadn't heard. And, and he would tell me that and say, oh, what was that artist? And that would make my day. Oh, wow. That's, that's fascinating. And I, under, I understand from a little birdie that you actually have a Springsteen story as well. From Esther? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I can't remember which one it is. And the, the first one that comes to mind is, was early on in Flywheel Days, and we were literally in the middle of a very important board meeting, and our assistant came in to interrupt this extremely important board meeting to tell us that Bruce Springsteen's assistant called because Bruce wanted to come to class. So we were all, you know, I can't think of a better reason to interrupt a board meeting. And yeah, so we yeah. were all beside ourselves only to find out that the assistant who called, called for Bruce Greenstein. <laughs> exactly. Oh uh, my God. So that was the first story that came to mind. That's great. Because I, I have to tell you, Bruce is uh, you know, pretty consistent with his exercising. Spinning is not is not in that guy's I mean, I've, I I know people that belong to his this the gym, same gym with him for many, many years. So that when I heard this, I'm like, wow, Bruce went to a to a to a flywheel or or, or you know or a soul cycle class? Okay. Bruce Greenstein. Well, I'm sure uh, I'm sure you immediately grabbed all the Bruce Greenstein music you could find and 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 put put quite a playlist together. <laughs> of course. And you know, the Bruce Springsteen rides never get old. They're always requested and I'm always a believer that you can spin to anything, you know, just as long as you connect to the music and love it and and so I could use, you know, anything from whatever, born in the USA to I'm on fire. You know, it doesn't even matter. Any, yeah, there's anything a, there's a, there is, there is. And I've, I've actually probably made 20 to 25 of my own Bruce bike playlists over the years. So I, I, there's different meanings for different songs that work in different ways. So what's the, the title of your book, Riding High? What, what does that mean to you? Riding High. It just means a lot of things. <laughs> there are a lot of meanings. I mean, at at first, there was some pushback because people thought I, w I was referring to riding high on drugs. 
Well, you know, the first time you see the title, that's what's going to hit you. So, so, yeah. so for me, because it- I haven't tried that, but okay. <laughs> I don't think you need to, and that's exactly no, I don't because plenty of endorphins coming. I was going to say you you are riding high, and you're riding high on the endorphins, and it's those endorphins that really got me through so much of my adult life. And at the same time, it indicates kind of taking the high road, and I feel like I've done that throughout my career, and I've I've really put a lot of energy into trying to maintain a good reputation as a boss, as a as an entrepreneur, as a business owner. Because what I have found, Mitch, unfortunately, throughout my business career, is that there are many people in business who don't take the high road and who don't exhibit great behavior. And so I really wanted to be a response to that and and see if I can prove that, yes, you can be successful in business and take the high road and be a good person and treat people fairly. I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way of putting it. So you're, you're out there giving a lot of speeches and, I, and I, I've seen a couple of them. So are, is, there, is there like one question you're always asked or maybe one that you're surprised that nobody has asked about? Hmm, that's a good question. I think that the most common questions that come up a lot are, as I pointed out before, how did I keep going after all of the setbacks? How do you choose a partner? I think those are the two most recurrent questions. Yeah. In terms of ones I'm surprised at, I honestly can't think of anything off the top of my head right now. That's fine. That's fine. I I, I think that you you know you're You've covered what I what I would think would be the ones that most people should ask. Are your daughters uh, into spinning? I know you have uh, twin girls. Yes, they both are very much into spinning and working out and staying fit, and I'm very happy about that. And they come to my class and they bring their husbands or boyfriends, and it's really nice. I love having them there, and even more importantly than that, I feel good about my career and hopefully being a positive woman role model for them. And they often tell me that I am and I have been and that I am. And honestly, there's really nothing better than that. No, there isn't. There, there is nothing better as a parent when, you're, when your kids feel some pride in what you've accomplished and what you've struggled for. And, and the older they get, the more it means. I mean, that's just really what I, what I find. As you know, Mitch, being a parent, there's no harder challenge in the world than than being a parent. And, you know, you could be an entrepreneur, you could start businesses, you can be successful. But at the end of the day, it's just and definitely for me was being able to raise two children who, especially with my history, feel good about themselves and feel confident. That to me was the biggest accomplishment I could ever have. That's beautiful. That's that's really beautiful. So you're 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 teaching the classes still, and 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 Esther told me she's been downloading them, and while she's riding her her Peloton, I guess. And you know, speaking of Peloton, I mean, are, are you shocked to see how they've taken? You know, they've just taken off during this pandemic. I mean, I like I said, I've had one from day one, and with, with my kids here now, it's this, this constant battle. But I must know twenty five friends that have attempted to buy Pelotons, and you know, in the last three months. Mitch, it's incredible. And, you know, I think we all, to a certain extent, try to think about silver linings with the pandemic because we want to 
think about positives. I mean, talk about a silver lining for, for Peloton. I mean, it's incredible. And I certainly know for me and all of my people who have been spinning with me for years, they all have bought Pelotons. And look, they were obviously very successful before the pandemic. And John Foley and I go back a long way. And he was a flywheel rider and came up with this idea because he had young children and couldn't always make it to class and I uh, didn't always have a babysitter. And so the idea came so organically and obviously it was the right thing. And I had doubts about it back in the, back in the day. I just thought it's all about the live connection and being physically with the class, but sure enough, he was right. And there, and at the end of the day, there's a need for both. And I think there will be the day where people will go back to the studio. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. And as I said earlier, I've made the pivot and I'm doing these classes online and I am seeing that it is possible to connect to people on, while you're online. And that to me is so gratifying in its own way. And I'm, I'm so pleased that I can keep the connections even though I'm online. And the technology, uh, my son uses this thing called the Whoop, which is in addition to having the Apple Watch or whatever else is tracking you, it's it's pretty amazing. And a lot of athletes are using this and it's just giving them all kinds of facts and figures beyond what the bike is giving them, including his, his, his the way he sleeps and, and all these things. And it's just amazing the technology that, that is out there. So as this is somewhat of a financial show, that is the, I do have that in the title, even though most of my shows tend to be with just fascinating people or have something to do with Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> That's just the way it works. But as a financial advisor, I am curious where you got financial knowledge. And the reason I ask that is that you and I are really part of the same generation, which my really good friend, Neil Godfrey, calls the Donna Reed generation, where it was easier to talk about sex than money growing up. You know, mom was vacuuming, wearing pearls. Everybody sat down to eat at 5.30. And there was certainly no talk about money. So where did you go to get help? And, and, and what would you suggest to those listening. And, and this isn't, you know, everyone makes a big, this is a very big issue about women and money. And and, and, and I understand that. But I, I, having worked with a lot of millennials handling 401k plans, it's not just women because no one's growing up with any of this basic knowledge and they're making a lot of money mistakes and me included, you know, without having this knowledge. So I was just curious, like where you uh, went to get that knowledge. I completely agree with everything you just said. And to this day, I worry about money and I worry about my future being a single woman and, and it's scary. And it, 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 there's a certain fear that's always there around money. And fortunately you touched earlier upon the fact that you're talking about type A personalities and spinning definitely attracts type A personalities. And as a result, literally from my early teaching days at Reebok through SoulCycle and Flywheel, there were so many finance slash type A personalities that showed up in my classes. And as a result, I built relationships with many of them. And I have a few very close friends who are very accomplished finance people. And um, so I have my own kind of little team that I can go to and yeah, and ask advice and, and they want nothing more than to advise me and help me as friends. And so I'm very fortunate to have that. And that's helpful. Everybody needs a team around them, no matter what, what they do in their life. You know, it is, it is, it is, it is so true. So just a couple, two quick 
kind of a lightning round questions. One one really is about the S word, and I I, I bring this up with with a lot of entrepreneurs like you, and that's stress. Because for me, that's what got me on the bike to begin with, let's say. It's something I deal with every single day. It affects my health. I do everything I can possibly do to avoid stress, but stress is just going to be there. And it you know shows up in things like IBS or reflux and all those other fun little things that are out there. But I'm just curious if you have any other great tips for stress, because you know it's just something that I think I know for me personally and for many that I talk to, it's it's just something that's a constant battle. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, obviously being in fitness and and starting to spin businesses, I did have that built in because I was first and foremost an instructor and I'm always an instructor. So I was teaching classes and that was a huge help in managing my stress. So I think it's twofold. I think exercise is super important for managing stress. It makes, you know, as I said earlier, it just makes all the difference in your day if you work out at some point during the day. And secondly, I think it's so much about communication and verbalizing what you're stressed about. And you know, hopefully if you do have partners, they are partners you can trust and partners you can talk to. So if you're stressed about something in the business, you can, you know, tell them about it and and get their opinion on how to manage the whatever the particular problem is. I think that, you know, the culprit in stress for so many of us is, you know, you mentioned disease and IBS. And I think that so much of it is a cause of repressing what we're feeling. And I think so many of us struggle with that. And the more you repress, the more stressed you are, and it doesn't go away until you talk about it. I'm also a huge proponent of therapy, and therapy has helped me enormously in terms of figuring out what stresses me out. And and again, I, I don't know unless I talk about it. So fitness, talking about it, two most important things. Absolutely. I could, I certainly agree. Is there one song that either has been on your playlist more than any other that just kind of epitomizes what you want people to get out of a ride? Or it could be an artist, but if it, a specific song? It's interesting. There is one song and no one's heard of it. It doesn't have lyrics. And usually I'm a big proponent of lyrics, but there's something about this song that is so inspiring and driving and it kind of progresses and pushes you as the rider. It's called Niton, N-I-T-O-N. The version that I like is done by the very famous DJ Eric Prids, P-R-Y-D-Z. Anytime I play it, I'm asked whose song it is. I know his accountant, actually. Oh, that's so funny. And um, I'm telling you, Mitch, it's it never gets old. And whenever I include it in my playlist, I, I will surely get a great class at the end. And what was that song? And so that's a huge one. And, uh, and there's one other that is a mashup that was given to me by a DJ that we had employed in the very beginning of Flywheel in 2010. And it's a mashup uh, of Jay-Z and Van Halen. And it's it's very short, unfortunately. It's under three minutes. And it's a mashup of the PSA, Jay-Z, and Van Halen right now. And it's so genius. And it's the best way to end a class. And again, everyone wants it when they hear it. Where did you get that? And then I 
just end up sending it to people and it's awesome. Oh, well, it, it sounds great. And uh, I know uh, anyone listening to my show on Spotify, go check out, you might not be able to find that one, but check out Maiton. Certainly, I would imagine that would probably out there in the streaming world somewhere. The last thing uh, I always credit Tim Ferriss with, because it was he does this in his book, Tribe of Mentors, but I just love this question. So I just kind of borrow it and end my show with it. So you are granted a billboard, and on this billboard, it could be any message that you wanted to deliver the world. What would it be and why? Life is about resilience and reinvention, because that's, that's my motto, resilience and reinvention, that no matter how much we fail, we build strength, we build resilience, and we get to reinvent ourselves over and over and over again. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. I love that. Ruth, I can't thank you enough for taking time today to not only share your stories about Soul Cycle Flywheel, but really to, to speak from the heart. And, and I know your words in your book and your speeches and, and of course your rides are really helping people every single day. And I, I hope you know that. And, and it, it, you make a tremendous impact on, on people's lives. And, and that's something that should, should have you wake up every day with a big smile. I have to take one of your classes now. I think I might have taken one in the Hamptons years ago, but um, maybe even at the DC one. But I certainly looking forward to whatever is coming next. The book is available everywhere, Riding High, and we're going to link to it on Amazon on the show page or support your local bookstore. I, you know, I tell everybody if that's possible. We're also going to link to Ruth's webpage so you can arrange to have her as a speaker. Uh, there are a lot of companies when I am going to speak to folks at my organization. And I have like five different ideas already for you, Ruth, because I, 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 there's just so many, so many great things that, that, that you've discussed here. And I really look forward to actually meeting you when the coast is clear, because that's really, for me, the, the most frustrating part of, of doing the podcast the last few months is not being across the table or wherever we are in a studio. It does change the dynamic. Thanks to the folks at Resonate Recording for the quick turnaround as they've been doing on the production work. There are some shows that I typically are about half the, the time this show is, but when I have someone of, 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 that has so much impact and, 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 and so many so much wisdom to deliver, then I go all Mark Maron and I don't even look at how long the show is going. <laughs> well, I enjoyed every minute. So thank you. Yes. Yeah. And please folks share the podcast with your friends. If they spin, they really need to hear this show. And even if they don't, because they, they need to you know figure out something to take care of themselves. And remember when saving for your financial future, always pay yourself first. Have a great week. Bye.